Our sermon this morning is on Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you have them, if you brought them, if not, grab a pew Bible from the, from the seat in front of you. You can find Romans chapter 7 uh, on page 887 in your pew Bible. So grab it and turn there, and we're going to spend a few minutes just on six, uh, six verses um, from the book, from the, the seventh chapter of Paul's letter to the, the Romans. As you turn there, um, uh, give us just a quick recap, quick overview of how, where we've come thus far in Romans. I've repeated this a lot during the course of the, the sermon series through Romans, and that's kind of intended to help us kind of stitch together. I mean, Romans is kind of a long, logical, uh, you know, um, legal almost argument that Paul is making and weaving these building foundations and he's, you know, establishing premises and then kind of working to conclusions based on those premises. And so it's helpful to kind of keep the full, uh, you know, trajectory, the full uh, letter in mind. So uh, Romans 1, the kind of the, the thesis, as, as if you will, of, of Paul's letter uh, is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. Uh, to save sinners through faith uh, when they trust in, in Christ. That's kind of Paul's thesis. Everything, the next 16 chapters are, are working that thesis out. And so he starts in chapter 1, right? Uh, if, if, if the gospel is the power of God to save sinners, then we have to establish that sinners are in fact lost. And so Romans 1, he's going to say uh, Gentiles, non-religious people are lost. They're accountable to God and guilty before God and deserving of the judgment of God. Romans 2 then flips not to Gentiles, but to Jewish people, religious people, people who kind of have the, the veneer of, of religion and, and kind of godliness. He says they too are guilty before God. They haven't followed the law. They deserve God's judgment. Romans 3 just puts a bow on it. Every, everyone uh, everyone uh, is, is uh, sinful. They've fallen short of, of God's uh, glory. It's going to stand before God, silent, deserving of his judgment and wrath. But then there's a turn, there's a shift where it says, but now there is another righteousness, not a righteousness from within ourselves, but a righteousness from God uh, that's freely given to sinners when they trust in Jesus who died in their place. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. He lives a perfect life, dies a sacrificial death, and then Jesus' righteousness is imputed to sinners who trust in him. That's kind of Romans 1 through 3. Romans 4 is a case study. It's an example showing that that reality works itself out in real life with the person of Abraham. Abraham was not saved by his religious accomplishments. He wasn't saved by works. He wasn't saved by, uh, you know, his adherence to the law. He was saved by trusting in God, and God was merciful to him. So that's Romans 1 through 4. Romans 5 starts to look at some of the at the implications and the results. Uh, what is true now, given that that gospel from Romans 1 through 4 is true? And so he talks about the security of the believer and the assurance that we can have of knowing that God will never drop us, never lose us. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and that is an indelible, unalterable, unchangeable, irrevocable reality for us. You can't lose your salvation. You can fake it and show that you never had it, but you can't lose your salvation. So then Romans 6 is kind of the next step, right? If we, if we have this gospel of grace by which we are saved and reconciled to God, and if we can't lose that salvation no matter what, then the next question is, well, then I guess I can just sin uh, in any way that I want. I guess I can live however I want with no regard to God and his law and his holiness. And Paul says, no, you can't do that right? Uh, you can't 
be saved by God, like, because, because the gospel is not just this like change in status from sinner to forgiven, right? But, but leaving you still intact as, as fundamentally the same person that you were. But in fact, when you're saved by God, it doesn't just forgive your sin and wipe it away. It also, it, it unites you with Christ. It unites you with his death. It unites you with his resurrection. The, the life, the resurrection power and life of Jesus is now coursing through your veins in a way that, that changes you and makes you a different person. So no, uh, we can't go on sinning uh, and abusing the grace of God because we can't lose our salvation because the nature of having been saved is going to make us not want to, to do that. That's Romans 6. So that's where we've come up until now. The gospel of grace and some of the, the implications and applications of it and some of the questions that arise from it. In Romans 7, Paul's going to continue working on that same question, this idea of like who we were before and who we, were, who we are now, right? The question of can we continue in sin since God's going to save us anyway really is getting at the idea of aren't we the same person that we were before now? And so wouldn't we therefore want to and don't we therefore now have the right to sin like we wanted to do before now? And so Paul's trying to show Romans 6 and 7 is basically Paul saying you're different now. That, that's, a, that's a nonsensical question. Can't we sin since we're forgiven anyway because you're a different person? And Romans 7, 1 through 6 kind of works at how uh, another kind of example, another perspective of of how we are different. It's specifically how we are different with regards to the law of God and our relationship to the law of God. The rest of chapter 7 is going to be about the law of God. So um, we are going to uh, read through the first uh, six verses, and then we are going to, uh, yeah, spend some time considering them together. It starts and says... Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? If a married woman is bound by, or for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, She's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, or they may belong to, so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray together. King Jesus, uh, we come before you this morning. We uh, invite you here with us. We pray that you would come here and, and meet with us and speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might genuinely encounter you, the sovereign Lord, our, our great God and Savior in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know 
the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, right? Paul just got finished saying we're, we're slaves to sin and you are now slaves to righteousness. That's the tail end of Romans 6. You were under law, you are now under grace, and now he's going to kind of show that and prove that, right? This idea that you were under law, but you're not anymore, and now you're under grace. He's going to say, I'm going to show you through a, an example, an illustration, an analogy, that that is, in fact, true of you. Now, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Jewish people, religious people, people who are familiar with the Old Testament, people who are familiar with the rabbinical tradition about the Old Testament. And for those people, this uh, might not have been, um, th- this would have been a fairly self-evident reality, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. It serves to kind of prove Paul's greater point that he's making in the book of Romans, but he's saying, you realize that that's, like we all agree that the, the law is only bi- binding on a person as long, like every Jewish person in the, in the ancient world would have believed that, that the law of God is binding on all people, right? They would have thought, we have the law, we possess the law, we, you know, are the people who, like, the, the, all of the world is under the accountable, uh, uh, is accountable to God's law, under the authority of God's law, we're just the ones who have it and know it. So we're special, we're, we're privileged, but they recognize every living person on the planet is under God's law. They also recognize the flip side that once you die, you're not under God's law anymore, right? Like, you know, the, the, the law of God was God's prescription for how he wants his people to live, right? Looks at Adam. Don't eat, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from that one in the middle, right? Gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. Don't worship false gods. Take the Lord's name in vain. Sab- honor your parents. Sabbath, right? D- lie, steal, murder, right? So, so the, the law is God's prescription on how to live, which means you can only do it if you're living, if you're alive. Once you die, you can't very well obey or disobey the law of God anymore. It only applies to living people. So that's kind of Paul, Paul saying, we all get that. And, if you, and that's going to serve my greater point, which is that we're not under law, but under grace. But uh, to, to show you how that reality, that, that once you die, you're not under the law anymore, to prove that even strong, more strongly, I'm going to give this analogy about marriage. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So marriage is, is only valid, it's only, it only counts, it only goes as far as both people are alive. When one spouse dies, the marriage is over. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, then she is not an adulteress. So, after one person dies, the, the surviving spouse is free to marry anyone they want, which is, again, not the most romantic idea in the world to consider the reality that between you and your spouse, one is probably going to live longer than the other. Maybe not much longer, but Probably, um, probably longer, and, and when the first one dies, the surviving spouse is free to remarry if they so choose. So, it's worth just taking a minute or two to kind of pause and think about marriage and remarriage and, and divorce and remarriage, and just kind of a quick survey of the, the New Testament and how it understands that. Um, even though it's not necessarily the point that Paul's making here, uh, it, it, he does, it, it is kind of 
a topic that he's getting into. And so I just want to take a minute or two and kind of look at the Christian understanding of marriage, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, that kind of thing. So the starting with the basics, kind of go back to God's original intention, original design for marriage, Genesis chapter 2, right? Um, it says that uh, God brings Eve to Adam and, and Adam sings this song, kind of has this, this uh, you know, writes this poetry, as it were, about his wife. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. It says that, uh, you know, God says, then man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the, the vision that God has for marriage, the original design and original intention for marriage in Genesis is one man, one woman, uh, permanently the entirety of one's life, right? The, the man grows up, the man becomes an adult, the man becomes a man, right? He goes, goes from boy to man, becomes a protector, a provider. Then they get married, they become one flesh, they cling together, they stay together, or this inseparable marital unit. There's no mention of divorce in Genesis 2. Not, right, because there's just no category for it. It's not even uh, something that is worth mentioning or, or considering or kind of, uh, you know, caveating as, as an option down the road. It's just not, not part of God's original intention and, and design, which is probably a healthy way for us to think about divorce and remarriage kind of as a starting point, right? right? Uh, just not, not something that we consider, not something that we have a category for, not something that we think about, not something that we want to have a contingency plan for in case it, it happens, right? right? The, the ideal from Genesis 2 uh, marriage is permanent, lasts the entire lifetime of the couple. That's kind of how we should go into marriage uh, with it, right? The God, God's original, and remember, Genesis 2 is before sin. So we've got two, you know, uh, people in this perfect world where there's no sin yet. They're loving one another, serving one another, deferring to one another, prioritizing the other one over themselves. And God's ideal is for them to remain like that their entire life. But Genesis 3, we have, the we have the introduction of sin into the world. And so now relationships get more complicated. They, they you know, now um, it doesn't take long before in Scripture we see divorce either mentioned in passing or, you know, the process for how to go about thinking about and handling divorce because now there's the reality that we live in a fallen world filled with sinners, a world that is affected by sin. So things are not always as simple and clean as they were originally intended by God to be. So the Old Testament speaks about divorce a little bit. And it's not until the New Testament where we start to see some, like, see the, the Old Testament's mention of divorce kind of worked out practically uh, in ways that it actually gives us insight into, okay, is there... Are there times when divorce and remarriage are acceptable for the people of God? And if so, what are they? What are the biblical grounds for divorce and those kinds of things? So one, one example of remarriage in the New Testament would be this text, Romans 7, right? Which is pretty straightforward. If, a person, if your spouse dies, then you are free to uh, remarry. Seems clear-cut, seems uh, simple enough. There are some other texts that I'll just point to briefly and then, then we'll kind of move on uh, that talk about divorce and remarriage if your spouse is still alive. Um, one is, well, Jesus is asked about divorce, right? Because all of the uh, rabbis and teachers in the New Testament, they all thought about this a lot. They all had their different schools of 
thought, well, I think that I have a more lax uh, view of when divorce is allowed and when it's not. And I have a more strict view of when. To, and so they would all ask each other and have debates about it. So they come up to Jesus and they're like, when do you, th- wh- what, whose, whose team are you on about divorce and remarriage? And Jesus kind of starts. And so we can see this in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, if you want to do some homework during the, the week. But they come up to him and they ask him about divorce and remarriage. And Jesus starts by acknowledging kind of what I just did, which is that like this, it's like before we even talk about divorce, let's go all the way back to Genesis 2 and look at God's original intention and design for marriage, that it is in fact permanent. He says, what God has joined together, man should therefore not separate. And he even likens divorce and remarriage to adultery. So, so Jesus understands God's original intention for marriage to be the ideal, what we should strive for. Now, uh, in Matthew specifically, in Matthew 19 and in Matthew 5, uh, when he's likening divorce and remarriage to adultery and therefore saying don't do it, he also adds a, a qualifying phrase that says, um, you know, if anyone divorces their spouse, they're guilty of adultery, except in the case of sexual immorality. So, so Jesus seems to imply that if a spouse commits adultery then that gives the offended spouse biblical grounds to pursue a divorce if they would like to, and, and they're, they're not necessarily uh, guilty of, of sin. Another kind of uh, example in the New Testament of biblical grounds for divorce, or at least something that we might construe as biblical grounds for divorce, is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is a big chapter all about marriage. Right? How Christians are to pursue marriage, how Christians are to treat one another in the context of marriage. And he says, if you are married, then you should stay married to your spouse. Don't go and marry someone else. Paul says, even if your spouse is not a Christian and you are a Christian, stay married to them. If they want to stay married to you, then you should stay married to them. You have an obligation to them and to God to remain married to them for as long, you know, for, for your entire life. That's what marriage is. But then... There's one specific exception in 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul mentions about uh, when a Christian could divorce their spouse and remarry someone else. And he says, if you're a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian and that non-Christian leaves you, abandons you, then in that instance, it's okay to let them go. You're no longer bound by that marriage. They left. So, surveying the New Testament, those are kind of the three kind of instances of when it's appropriate to marry another person after having married the first person already. One is if your spouse dies, the other is if your spouse commits adultery, and the third is if your unbelieving spouse leaves you. In those instances, you can uh, either get remarried or or get divorced and then uh, get remarried. Now, I tend to, when I look at 1 Corinthians 7, like, it's, it's worth mentioning as well, you know, just to be a, a faithful Christian, a faithful friend, you know, it's worth thinking about other scenarios that aren't specifically mentioned here. You know, the most notable being abuse. Right? You, you don't want to read the New Testament in a way, I, I wouldn't want to read the New Testament in a way that would, that would cause me to say, you know, look at a person who's been physically abused by their spouse and say, well, there was no adultery. And he's not claiming to be an unbeliever. 
and he hasn't physically left the home, so divorce is not an option for you. You just have to endure as best you can. Good luck. There, there, you know, there are Christians who, who say that in one way or another. I, I personally tend to think that in the cases of physical abuse or excessive or perpetual or unrepentant emotional abuse or, you know, when there's, when there's no harm in sight, when you're in a situation that's violent or dangerous, I think I would argue that what you have there is a spouse who has functionally and effectively abandoned their spouse. So, so cases of abuse like that, I think, uh, could be interpreted to kind of fall within the, the framework of 1 Corinthians 7. You know, if you, if you have a spouse that's, that's guilty of that kind of abuse, then, then I think that regardless of what they say they believe, I think that they have shown themselves to be an unbeliever. They have given the church reason to treat them as if they are an unbeliever. And they have effectively left or abandoned their, their spouse. And so, you know, the trick with all kinds of abuse, right, is like, it's hard to know where the line is. Right, I, I've met a lot of people who claimed to be victims of abuse that as best as I could tell after kind of hearing the particulars, I wasn't quite sure if abuse took place. I'm certain that I've definitely spoken with people who I think were guilty of abusing someone, but they would not, they would say, no, I'm not an abuser, right? So it's kind of in the eye of the beholder kind of thing. And so it's probably best handled, right? Determining whether abuse has taken place is probably best handled in the context of, you know, a faithful biblical community, pastors, elders, you know, godly, wise people, that kind of thing. But um, I would I would submit that uh, I I would submit that uh, if if a if a person is guilty of abuse or if a person is a victim of abuse, then you you kind of have a um, you're you're in that you're in the ballpark of that First Corinthians seven unbeliever having abandoned their spouse. I don't think it's as simple as saying. Divorce and remarriage are never options ever for Christians. Once you're married, it doesn't matter what your spouse does for the rest of their life. You never have grounds for divorce. I think there, there are some Christians who think that. And many of them, actually, I've been, been you know, I admire and I've learned a lot from. But I tend to think that death is grounds for remarriage. Uh, adultery is grounds for divorce and remarriage. And then uh, abandonment and, you know, abuse and some other things are, are grounds for divorce and uh, remarriage. So, that's quick sidebar on uh, marriage, divorce, remarriage, kind of a, a quick overview of the, the New Testament kind of theology on marriage and, and remarriage. But that's not what Paul is specifically getting into the weeds of here. He's just simply appealing to what he thinks is an already established fact that we all agree that, that, a, mar- that a person is no longer bound by their marriage covenant once their spouse dies, and he's going to use that to say, therefore, the Christian is no longer bound by or under the uh, law once a death has taken place like this. And so he says, um, verse 4, likewise, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So, just like when a, a wife's husband, do, a, a death takes place, and she is therefore no longer under that marriage uh, kind of 
commitment that she made, covenant that she was in. When a Christian, when a person becomes a Christian, a death takes place. Their old self dies. Their self that was under the authority of the law dies. And a new self is resurrected in place of that old self. A new self that is no longer bound by the law, but a self that is, that has a new master, a new uh, person that he is in covenant relationship with. And it's that person who has been raised from the dead, namely uh, Jesus, right? When you get married, it's a commitment for as long as you both shall live. And when you are uh, prior to coming to Christ, you are under the authority of the law for as long as you both shall live, right? For as long as you are alive. And when you become a Christian, a death takes place. So you can't leave your marriage just because you don't want to be married anymore. You can't somehow get out from being under the authority and the power of the law just because you want to. But if a death takes place, you're free to remarry. And when a person becomes a Christian, a death takes place and they're no longer bound to the law. They're no longer under the law. Which raises the question, what does it mean to be bound by the law? What does it mean to be under the law? And then what does it mean once that is no longer true for us? What does it mean when we are freed and released from uh, the the slavery to and being bound by the law? That's what Paul's going to work out in verses 5 and 6. Although before we do, it might be worth it might be worth starting with what does it not mean? Like what what does being under the law not mean, and what does being released from the law not mean? It doesn't mean that before when we were before we came to Christ, we were accountable to obey the law, but now that we have come to Christ, we are no longer accountable to obey God's law, as if none like as if we have you know, spiritual diplomatic immunity. We're not, we don't have to do, like, we don't have to do what God says anymore. We don't have to worry about the speed. We can park anywhere that we want and just throw the parking ticket in the trash, right? It's, it's so, so we don't have some sort of spiritual immunity that we don't have to obey God's law. That's not what it means to have been under the law and to no longer be under the law. It means something deeper than that. And I think that we can see some insight into what exactly it means in these last two verses. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So, was under the law, I'm not anymore. It doesn't mean I was accountable to obey the law and I'm not anymore. But it means, it means that before I was living in the flesh... And the law of God was pressing down on me uh, in, 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 with the intention to condemn and bring judgment and punishment. And, and even as it was doing that, it was also uh, arousing, uh, causing my sinful passions within me to be... To be it was, the law was making me more sinful than I was before it was on me or more sinful than I otherwise would have been were it not on me and it was the instrument the mechanism the apparatus by which I was condemned before God so the law is not merely a set of rules that God gives us and asks us to follow it's not less than that but it's more than just a set of rules that God asks us to follow it is a set of rules that uh, presses down and then actually arouses 
sinful behavior and disobedience to itself within us and then condemns us for that disobedience and that sinful behavior when it, it sees it, right? And that's kind of what Paul, when Paul's saying you are not under the law anymore, you're free from bondage to the law, he's talking about that kind of sin-arousing power that it has and sin-condemning guilt you know, condemn it, the condemning power of the law, the sin arousing power of the law, and the condemning power of the law. He says that you're not under that anymore as a Christian. The law used to be a, a tool that was used to condemn you, a standard by which you were measured and found wanting and marked for destruction. That's not true for Christians. Christians are not judged by the law in a way that they are marked out for death and and kind of set aside for destruction. Nor are Christians, when Christians interact with the law, nor does it uh, arouse sin in them in the same way that it used to before they were uh, a a Christian. This idea of of sinful passions being aroused by the law, we'll get into that in more detail next week in Verses seven through or tw- yeah seven through twelve. Let's see. Yep. Um, so it kind of Paul explains how the law actually. It you know Paul's whole objection, the whole objection that he's dealing with here in Romans seven is. So if he's talking about so Romans six was well why shouldn't we just sin all that we want since we're going to be forgiven anyway? And Paul says uh, no, you can't you can't do that. And then. Uh, so it's almost like Paul is, is um, arguing with a hypothetical person, and that person is saying, well, Paul, your gospel, where you're saved by grace and not by the law, you realize what that leads to, Paul. That leads to antinomianism. That leads to blatant disregard for God's law. The law suppresses sin, right? If, if, if there's no speed limit, people are going to go way faster than if there is a speed limit. The law suppresses sin. So, Paul, if you're saying that we're not saved by the law, you're just opening Pandora's box for people to sin all that they want. And Paul says in Romans 6, no. The, the law, uh, the, the Christians are not going to want to sin all that they want just because they're not under the law. But here in Romans 7, he's, he actually flips it around and says, and in fact, now that you brought it up, not only does not being under the law, like my gospel says, not make us sin more. In fact, right back at you, the law makes you sin more. The, the law, the condemning power of the law has a sin, sinful passion arousing power to it. Like the law actually makes you a worse sinner than if there weren't a law. And again, we'll get into it more next week, but you know, I mean, we can, you see this as a parent, right? You can see this like, um, you can see how rules and laws kind of evoke contrarianism and, and rebellion against authority when they are, you know, a, a, applied. Um, again, so I'm three, kids are three and one. I'm a novice. I'm a rookie with parenting. But you kind of learn, like, all right, there are, there are certain ways, like, if the, if the end goal is a desired behavior, there's ways to get there. And you have to kind of figure it, you have to work smarter, not harder with trying to get your kids to do the desired behavior that you want. Now, sometimes, sometimes the rule is that you just have to make a rule, right? Health and safety issues, 
Rules are rules. Don't play in the street. Yank them back out of the street if they try to go to it. Don't touch the hot, whatever, hot stove, right? There's sometimes there's things where you have to lay down the law. You have to enforce the law. But there's sometimes when maybe you're like, okay, this isn't a health and safety issue. And frankly, imposing a law might just make it harder, more difficult to get to the desired behavior. You got to use a little reverse psychology, right? Our, both of our kids around one developed a bad habit of throwing their food off of their tray onto the floor. You might say, it's not really that big of a deal, Ben. So what? Just get out the broom. It's a big deal to me. I can't stand. I've laid awake at night for hours scheming about how to not, how to keep that from happening or how to counteract it when it happens. I mean, so, you know, so, I mean, we, like, we tried putting them, and we bought a little high chair that's like goes on the counter. Throw all the food you want. I'll just sweep it into the sink. I win, right? Or, or uh, we put a blanket down, throw it on, just wrap the blanket up. So, you know, we, we've done all these different strategies because we realized that, like, just sitting there in front of me, like, don't throw your food off of your tray, that he does it more. He wants, he's like, great. Now I'm like, you know, little Theo has very little agency in this world. There's very few things that he can make happen. But he can make a 200-pound man with a deep voice, like, do, like, I can do this, and I can watch Ben sprint from the other room, and, you know, whatever, right? So, so the, right, if we, so we have to think, all right, if, we, if the desired behavior is less throwing food on the floor, maybe we just kind of act like we don't even notice or care, and maybe they won't do it as much. Or maybe the more that we impose a law on them, the more that that, like, desire to do that thing will be evoked and aroused, and he'll want to, to do it. And so Paul is saying the law, like, the argument that, Paul, you think that salvation doesn't come by the law, therefore your gospel is going to result in more sin, he says, no. And in fact, your gospel of saying that we're saved by the law is going to result in more sin because the law is going to evoke and arouse more sin in our sinful hearts. Right? So we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that more next week, but he just mentions it in passing here that sinful passions are aroused uh, by the law. And those sinful passions then are at work in our members and they bear fruit for death. So the law causes us to sin more and then the law points out and exposes where we have sinned and then marks us as we are now guilty and deserving of judgment and death. That's what it means to be under the law. That is what Christians is no longer true of Christians by virtue of a death having occurred. They died to the law, so they're not under it or bound by it in that way anymore. Verse 6 then kind of shows the flip side, which is what are we what have we been released to? Verse 5 is what were we released from? What were we brought out of from under its authority and under its condemnation? Verse 6 is what have we been released to? Now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're no longer under the law's oppressive authority. We're no longer having it 
bear down on us. We're no longer in this prison jail cell of law and weight and guilt and shame that then arouses more sin and then condemns us all the more for the new sin that it has aroused. We're no longer there, but where we are now is released to having died to that so that we can serve God in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. The old way, the old way you've got the, the written code that is your slave master, right? Uh, do this and then you will be blessed. If you don't do this, then you will be punished. That's the old way of the written code. But the new way of the Spirit is, God says, I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. And so now, I'm not going to insist that you obey me because you have to out of fear of punishment if you don't, in the hope that you might get me to love you if you do. Instead, I'm going to empower you to obey me because you can and because you get to. Right? I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm going to send my son to die for you. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to take the punishment that you deserve. He's going to give you the righteousness that he earned. And then his new life, right? Romans 6, 1 to 14. The new life of Christ. You're united with him in his death and his resurrection. So the new life of Christ is going to be coursing through your veins. You'll be a new person. You will be united with Jesus. You will have a newfound love of God, love of obedience, and a newfound hatred of sin and hatred of your old way of life. So, so the new way of the Spirit is God gives you that freely, without cost. He doesn't ask anything of you. He doesn't ask anything, any works or effort or merit. He gives salvation freely to you, and then he invites you to live in this new life that you have a newfound desire to live and the newfound capacity and, and ability to, to live. That's the new way of the, the Spirit. The old way of the written code is follow the rules or else. If you obey me, I will love you. If you disobey me, I will crush you. But the new way of the Spirit is, I love you already, irrevocably, unchangeably. And because I love you, here is how I want you to live because it's what's best for you. And, and even though you have failed, I am going to forgive you and save you and give you new life so that you can live with me under my rule just like I intended for you to do the whole time. That's the new way of the Spirit as opposed to the old way of the written code. God has saved us. A death occurred and we were released from being under the authority of the law. We were released from the old way of the written code and now we are free to serve God in the new way of the Spirit. Grace indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, power of the Holy Spirit to give me the ability to live the life that God calls me to live. An 18th century pastor had a little couplet that describes this reality, the, the, the contrast between the law and the gospel, our former way of life and our current way of life. His name was John Barrage, and he says, Run and work the law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands. 
but better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The old way of the written code puts demands that it knows you cannot keep and then it crushes you and condemns you. The new way of the Spirit calls you to obey and then it empowers you so that you can do it, so that you can enjoy God in a life of trusting and obeying in His presence. That's the life that God is calling us to together as a church family. That's the life that we lean into together, the life that we commit to together around the communion table. We eat and drink and remember that Jesus has saved us through his broken body and his shed blood, and then we commit together, we strive together to live for Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 11 says, On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For, for as often as you eat the bread and as often as you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you are a a member of the people of God, then this is our opportunity together to remember the gospel, to celebrate the gospel. After I pray, when the music team comes up and starts to play we invite you to come take communion with us come come forward uh, grab the elements head back to your seats the crackers are gluten-free the, the it's juice uh, take a moment to just repent of your sin confess your sin to god receive the grace that god freely offers you and then rejoice as you eat and and drink you're not a Christian, we would ask that you not take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to trust Christ, to take Christ uh, and, and trust in him to save you from your sins so that you can be saved from the wrath of God so that you can enjoy his grace and his presence forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We thank you that we have been released from the oppressive, condemning, sin-arousing power of the law, the, the old way of the written code. And Lord, we thank you that you have set us free to the new way of the Spirit, trusting in Jesus, receiving his uh, power, and walking with him. Lord, we we thank you for saving us from sin and death and hell, for giving us salvation. We pray that we could receive it and that we could respond rightly to it by, by trusting in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.